Industry Under Pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. All right, folks, I am looking, what am I looking at? Oh, yeah, here we go. I'm looking at a headline here on my uh, trusty iPad Pro. Uh, the headline, let's see, this is this is a Market Watch article that came out just yesterday. Um, yesterday for you is, when you're hearing this, is not yesterday for me, but anyway, it's relatively soon. And, um, or relatively in the recent past. Anyway, um, the headline says, Ransomware grows as cyber criminal gangs begin to arbitrate disputes. Now, I couldn't, I almost couldn't, I couldn't say that without, without laughing. Um, uh, ransomware grows as cyber criminal gangs begin to arbitrate disputes. I, this, this caught my attention and I thought, I have to know what this is all about um, because that is not how I expected the headline to end with the arbitrating disputes. So here, so here we go. This is, well, actually this is, this is an AP article that was published on market watch. The AP, the AP does most of the, most of the heavy lifting uh, in reporting as we know. And uh, let's see what criminal gangs, criminal gang no excuse me cyber cyber criminal gangs it's been a long day folks my eyes are just doing their own thing cyber criminal gangs are getting increasingly adept at hacking and becoming more professional more professional even setting up an arbitration system to resolve payment disputes among themselves this is according to a new report by the United States Australia and the United Kingdom that paints a bleak picture of ransomware trends. Now, um, which of course we know, and 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 you guessed it. We are going to talk about this, about this some today. Uh, I have a I've got a fantastic guest. I know I always say that, but I do. I have a fantastic guest, and 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 he's got a lot of he has um, he has some depth. I'm telling you, folks. Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about more than uh, I'm saying we're going to because this is, you're going to hear it. We have already talked, and I know what we talked about, and and it is and we're gonna cover cybersecurity. We're also gonna cover some stuff uh, I I think maybe more interesting um, because there's lots of talk about cybersecurity right now. We've had episodes on on this show, and and um, it's it's not like there isn't plenty to be heard on that topic. But the interesting part is, is how we got to where we are and how we got to where all of this became, especially in industrial um, environments. Uh, how did this become what it is today? And, uh, and it's not just because it's not just because the cyber criminal gangs have become so professional. Um, there's a lot of things that have gotten us to where we are. And, uh, and my guest today, we're going to talk about that. But first, this article, let's see, um, ransomware gang. So and on the off chance that some of you are not, um, uh, that you don't know what a ransomware gang is, they hack targets and hold their data hostage through encryption. Um, 
And we saw this happen uh, in the last year or two, whatever it was, with uh, with a very large meatpacking company, a big U.S. fuel pipeline, some other targets. Um, and, uh, and, and Western governments are now, this article says, are pledging to crack down on the cyber criminals who basically do whatever they want without anybody cracking down on them so far as we can see. But, um, but this part was interesting. Um, uh, so it, it talks about how, you know, they're, uh, uh, oh, so this, so this new report, it highlights the growing maturity and speci- specialization, specialization of the ransomware market. So, so if you think that these are just like, you know, like people, you know, people out there in their in their mother's basements, you know, hacking. It's, there are those, they're they're part of the picture, I'm sure. But these are organized. This is organized crime, uh, essentially, and and they've got different specialized roles, which range from it says here hackers who can break into networks or develop ransomware to non technical operators who negotiate payments with victims. This is big business, folks, and uh, and it's well organized and. And the uh, pièce de résistance. There's even money to be made by arbitrators who can settle payment disputes among the various ransomware criminals. So, uh, so they're actually they're they're arguing about who, which which ransoms. I I can't even. I'm not even sure exactly how this can be true, but but it is. And they're and they're hiring arbitrators to figure out which of the criminals are entitled to which payments. So. If that doesn't, uh, um, I don't even know what to say about that. I really just don't even know what to say about that. But, um, but we are going to talk about it uh, on today's episode uh, right here on the Oil and Gas Tech Podcast, which is being brought to you on the Oil and Gas Global Network, uh, which, as you know, uh, you've heard me say, uh, but I'm going to say it again because we are very proud of being the largest and most listened to network of podcasts for the oil and energy industry, and uh, and that is that is true. You can't. There's no disputing that. So, uh, not bragging, just stating the facts. So, thank you for uh, thank you for listening, and uh, I, you know, I. I'm still I'm still blown away by this arbitration thing. So I'm I'm running out of steam in my usual uh, clever, uh, witty opening uh, thing. So so we're just wow, that was beautiful. Anyway, folks, let's uh, let's move on to the next part of the program. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm OGGN welcome to Daniel Nagala. And we are here with Daniel Nagala, uh, as you just heard before that snappy musical interlude. And I have to say, uh, and, and Daniel is is going to be one of he's one of the most interesting guests that I've had on the show probably in a long time for a whole bunch of reasons that have nothing to do <laughs> with the topic that we're going to talk about. So maybe maybe I'll I'll pull a little bit of that out of you. But but Daniel, thanks for making time today. I uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to have the opportunity to participate it's that's good because i always it's always a bummer when we get somebody who doesn't want to be here whenever it's always good to have somebody who's excited to be here so (laughs) i can imagine um, yeah it's no it's no good actually you know what um this is this is true people don't realize this but i have episodes that never see the light of day well i don't know what 
what's the audio equivalent of see the light of day whatever it is i have episodes that have never made it because because of this it just it just wasn't good but this is going to be great so right. um we got into this we got into this conversation because of all the great things that you do um You've had a company for a long time, and you've been um, in the OT environments uh, deeply, which is, of course, a hot topic. We talk about it a lot on the show. Um, so there's a bunch of there's some cool stuff we could talk about, but let's start with a little bit like, uh, and I don't know how you can you can tell this story however you want, but like a little bit about you and who you are and how you started the company and and, and all of that sort of thing. Okay, well, um, you know, I I grew up in northern Arizona, got a degree in computer science with some minors in math and microbiology and thought uh, <laughs> I might Why, why not something. throw the microbiology in too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thought, thought I might do something other than, uh, than, than engineering. Uh, came to Houston um, mainly because of a, of a f- very close friend that I wanted to be with. Mm. Uh, worked on a master's degree in biology and was uh, working as a programmer in a uh, little company that was building pipeline control systems from scratch. Yeah. And so I started learning about pipelines. I started learning about how to actually write software for real industrial uses. And, you know, over time, I uh, migrated into really being totally focused on that. But on my journey there, I worked as a river guide, rafting and kayaking instructor, I was uh, a part-time instructor for the National Outdoor Leadership School in Lander, Wyoming, taught mountaineering and, and expeditioning skills, and did a lot of that on my own as well. And um, I uh, thought I might go to medical school, and I went down the path of getting, becoming a paramedic and deciding I didn't like medicine. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So here I am. I'm finally a, uh, uh, an engineer running a company. That's perfect. And by the way, I forgot to mention the name of that company because I was so uh, caught up in all the other interesting things about you. But UTSI, I think it's actually UTSI International, right? Isn't that the, the, yes, the form is. of the complete name of the company? So is there a, I, I looked and I didn't, I didn't see, is there a story? Well, did the letter stand for anything? No, actually, I started the company with three colleagues from a software company, a SCADA software company I worked for in the late 70s and early 80s. And we um, were going to form a technical services company. And we thought that uh, this United Technical Services Incorporated might be a good company name. We had a lawyer that didn't do his homework. He said that (laughs) name was fine. We started using it. And after six months, we found out that he'd never filed our articles of incorporation. And that that name certainly wasn't available. It's too good Uh, to be true. But a six-month-old company, people started using the initials, and we were getting some sure. recognition. So we said, well, then that's the official name of the company. Just the letters, no significance. That's, uh, that's how it that's came fantastic. to be. It's good, because I noticed it's an unusual combination of letters. So it's, it's really, uh, it's, 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 it doesn't, it's easy to, you know, get, like, domain names and, you know, all of that, and yep. all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so it was UTSI, Inc., and then it became UTSI International when we started doing a lot more international business and opened yeah. some offices overseas and whatnot. Yeah, and I want to get to that because that's an interesting part of the story too. I did want to I did want to uh, throw in a couple of things that you left out of. Uh, so you talked about the mountaineering and did you say the kayaking? I can't remember if you said the kayaking. Yeah, I mentioned yeah, I was a kayaking kayak instructor. Yeah. 
You didn't mention that. So when we first, right, right as we got uh, hooked up here, and by the way, folks, we are in the uh, we're in the remote configuration today. Uh, so so we're so we're online, and and right before you got on this, you said that you had your microphone set for your for for your ham radio. So you also have some ham radio uh, stuff going on there. What what was it you said? The president of of uh, something. I'm currently the president of the Clear Lake Amateur Radio Club, which is an amateur radio club based in the Clear Lake City, Texas area. And our sister club is the Johnson Space Center Club. But you have to be an employee of Johnson Space Center to be a member of that uh, club. So uh, for uh, those of us who don't work for the Space Center, we have this extra yeah, club. And for the regular We folks. do activities together. So we, right. we do a lot of uh, public service uh, events and most of us are also volunteers for the Galveston County Emergency uh, Office of Emergency Operations. Is, so, is, a- so this is fascinating because it, it, I guess there's still a lot of that amateur radio stuff going because we think of everything happening on the internet these days, right? But but there, I guess there's still a lot of of the old school radio kind of things happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll tell you, uh, you know, when when the internet goes down, my radio still works. <laughs> and I can still talk to people as long as I have power. So, you know, I'm KG5 PVP, and I can be out there talking to people around the world, even with with no internet and no commercial power available. So this that is, is uh, where things really happen. And actually, one of our other employees was saying he's connected with the Coast Guard, and they had problems with communications when power was out during yeah. one of the recent storms. And they right. relied on ham radio operators for their communications. So that's fantastic. I, uh, not so much the power, but when the internet goes out, I say the same thing about my record player. I can still listen to music even when, even when the internet goes out. So uh, there you I do, go. need, I do need the power though. These, uh, I mean, yep. Yeah. yeah you gotta have that. All right. There's uh, there's yep. another interesting thing I remember from when we were chatting uh, before there's a story. So somewhere, somewhere with the company, I don't remember if it's this company or some other company, but you mentioned, you, you told me this great story about, uh, I think it was in the 70s, building some system software. And you got interesting inquiries from, <laughs> from people who, oh. who, who weren't, you know, the whole notion of people out there building computer systems wasn't something that everybody was familiar with, right? So you got some misdirected inquiries, if I recall. Yeah, so the first company I worked for in 1976, was a startup. It was called System Software Incorporated, mm-hmm. um, and they were doing industrial control systems. They had one big client, which just happened to be Conoco at the time, and they hired me to write software. And in our office, we had a secretary and a couple of guys working around the office, and we used to get calls every week or so, maybe a couple times a week, of people wanting to know what kind of clothing we sold. <laughs> because. Uh, people thought software was clothing in the 70s. And they were totally surprised when we told them, no, it has nothing to do with clothing. Uh, nothing to do with clothing. Uh, I'm sure that today almost no one, if no one, <laughs> would make that yeah. mistake. But I don't think uh, so. I don't think anybody would, but software um, software clothes, it makes sense. You could see how somebody yeah. logically could, could come to that conclusion if they've I, never heard I of think software. So. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Uh, I know it. It surprised all of us, but you know, after a while, you start to get used to it. <laughs> so it's funny that it happens. <laughs> Those calls just so come in. Times. We go, yeah, another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> send them the send them the Sears catalog. Um, all right, all right. Enough of all that stuff. Um, UTSI today. I know we want to. Um, 
we want to talk about um, pipeline control systems and security because it's a big topic right now in the industry. Um, I think we're going to have a little bit of a slightly a slightly different conversation about that than some of the other ones that we've had, uh, mainly because you. Um, I mean, that's what, that's what, uh, so you guys are, this is what you're focused on for the most part, right? With the company? Yeah. Our company's primary focus has always been oil and gas pipeline communications and control systems, which involves mainly a big centralized data center, a centralized control room, and the communications that go out to remote sites that are geographically dispersed, you know, maybe across the whole country or certainly um, many miles away from where the central operations are. Right. And so right. you need communications to deal with those, and you need um, end devices out in those field locations as well. So we have some expertise in that area too. Yeah, so th this is something that I think is kind of interesting for um, – um, I, I mean, this is – it's come up in uh, – a variety of conversations that I've had with different people, not necessarily on the, on the podcast, but there's been so much activity the last couple of years, you know, as oil and gas gets very serious about digital transformation and pretty soon we're taking aim at, you know, what we now call the edge, which, you know, pipeline uh, control systems or, 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 or let's just say pipelines or, you know, any operational, uh, you know, it could be drilling, could be refineries, whatever. Um, and what, and in the, and all of the flurry about let's go out there and do stuff with the and 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 get data and and do analytics and all of these like cool things that we want to do with the edge. It seems like sometimes people weren't aware that there were already computers out there and computers and networks and all of these things that you mentioned. All of that stuff has been out there for a long time, right? It's not that we're bringing computers to those environments for the first time. No, in the pipeline industry, computers and computerized control, even from centralized facilities, although maybe not as big as they are today, but we had regional kind of centralized facilities that um, still had computers in them and communications for their regional devices uh, in the early 70s and maybe yeah. even before that. You know, my time dates back to the 70s, and I, I know that for a fact. Yeah. But... Um, you know, I was working on systems in the mid-70s that had been installed for five or six years before that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. these things have been around. They've evolved a lot over the years mm -hmm. where a major operator, let's say the, you know, the big guys like you know, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, the great big guys that have lots of operations across the country. Back in the older days when we didn't have computer technology that could handle large data sets and lots of load, and we didn't have the diversity of communication systems that we have today, typically had regional operating centers where they'd have a, a control center with um, computers and communication terminations, and then that might communicate and manage pipelines in a you know few hundred miles, maybe a thousand mile radius of where they were. Um, over the years, and this probably started in about the mid-80s, maybe mm -hmm. mid-80s to 90s, mm -hmm. there was a big consolidation that took place where companies started to phase out those regional control centers and bring all of that functionality that was out there into one big centralized location. So today, if you look at all those majors that used to have those diversified operations, they now have one big centralized operation that handles everything that 
six control centers used to do and you know years prior yeah 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 um and so technology's made all that possible right but so what you're describing there though is kind of an evolution in the physical configuration of all those things you get better communications so you don't have to right so you can centralize on all that what about the actual capabilities and i guess where i'm where i'm going with this is um the capabilities so there's computers out there and by the way they've been producing data right for a long time it's not like when we when we have all these digital ambitions that we want to do with data today it's not like we're creating i mean some we are in some cases but like there's data out there um and what so what was it so if all of these capabilities are already out there why when the digital transformation crew came along with all their ideas why what you know we hear about all this conflict between this IT OT you know difficulty what 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 made it so difficult if and I think I know the answer to this question but you you can explain it better what made it difficult to just why couldn't we just go out there and say okay great now we can do all of this digital stuff as well well you know the thing is is We've been collecting data for a long time, of course, but we haven't been keeping it in perpetuity like we do now. Yeah. We collected historical data. We had limited disk space. So, sure. you know, you yeah. might keep yeah. data for a year or two max, depending on the resolution and the quantity. Right. And then maybe you'd archive it to tape or something because you didn't have any other long-term storage media. And then it was hard to recover. And then as technology changed, then you couldn't read those old, uh, archived magnetic formats anyway. So a lot of that data from years and years past got lost. But in about the mid-90s, probably, we started to see a big shift toward uh, trying to keep that information for a much longer period mm-hmm. and trying to keep it accessible, not only for operations and you know follow-up and audits and studies and things, but also for business applications. And yeah. this is where we started getting that that OT, well, what we call OT or industrial control system, right. uh, collaboration with the business side of the house. Yeah, yeah. And um, you now, for for a long time, the SCADA and control systems they were just their separate island of technology that was out there. And if you wanted to move data to the business, you'd have to write it off to some kind of physical media and hand carry it up there and figure out how to import it then. <laughs> right, so, which you know, which we which we even do inside the business sometimes, but um, we still do some of that now. We, but but we, do. we don't like to. <laughs> it's, right. Um, so uh, okay, so so that was you said, and and, and by the way, any people who listen to the show regularly know that I love um, as much as I like talking about the cool new stuff, the history of the technology, the innovation um, in the industry. I always find fascinating. So. Um, so nineties, we start saying, Hey, we're going to need some of this data, whether it be for, for audits or whatever, or eventually the business, um, uh, wants it, which, uh, which is, is usually represented by what eventually became called it. Right. And in fact, I, I remember before, before it really existed, there wasn't really a corporate it group that, that happened in the nineties as well, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Eighties. Yeah. Late eighties and nineties. We started using networks in the control systems arena in about, Oh, 86, 87, maybe Mm -hmm. we started seeing the first control systems with, with Ethernet networks, and they were right. big, and they were clunky, and they were kind of hard to implement, but they opened up a lot of possibilities for um, minimizing cabling between 
cooperating devices and redundancy and other things like that. Right. And right. as networking technology got better, and especially into the early 90s when we started having Ethernet that's clo more closely resembling what we have today, not yeah, precisely, right. but close, more right. closely, um, then we started seeing interconnectivity to, to business the business side of the house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this whole IT OT piece, it kind of evolved out of the the growth of of networking and networking technologies and uh, corporations becoming much more dependent on uh, data services that were centralized in, you know, computers and data storage sure. areas and yeah. whatnot. So uh, you know, the IT guys, they knew the business. We always right. considered IT guys business guys, and we always <laughs> considered what we call OT today, you know, those were the engineering and operations guys. Right. And it's right. still kind of that way, except yep. that the line of delineation has become much better defined. Yeah. It's always surprising. Uh, the first time I ever heard somebody refer to IT as the business, it was actually, uh, there's a guy over at Air Liquide, Marty Martin, who's been there for many years. You may you may know him. Um, and he was the first person I ever, some years back, I ever heard him. He kept saying the business and I didn't quite follow what he meant because, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the corporate world, it's the business and IT are two different things that are trying to get along and trying to understand each other better. But to you, it's all, mm -hmm. that's all the business, right? Yeah. I mean, for a long time, of course, now we cooperate really well between the IT and the OT sides, but for a long time, you know, both sides were at each other's throat and nobody yeah. wanted the other in their area. <laughs> they didn't want to touch them. And I remember one customer once, uh, he was having problems. It was when they first started getting windows servers into the OT world. Before that, we were using things like uh, uh, open VMS from digital equipment. We were using mm -hmm. you know, other kinds of equipment and whatnot. And gradually, Windows crept in, and it's kind of the main server operating system we use now. Yeah. This one customer, he'd been having problems. The systems weren't keeping running. They kept crashing frequently. And you know, I go a week or two or three and then something would go wrong and they couldn't track it down. The vendor couldn't track it down. Mm -hmm. And he said he finally broke down and went and talked to the IT side of the house. <laughs> and the <laughs> IT guys <laughs> the IT guys came in, looked at his systems. This is what he told us. He said and you know, in like an hour they said, Oh well that's because you don't have this, this, this and this and we can fix it. And they fixed yeah. it and it never crashed again. Yeah. And he said, after that, he said, well, okay, the IT guys do have some benefit in my world. <laughs> there is so. something. There is something that they know how to do. That's that is yeah. that's really funny. I'm actually... Yeah, yeah now so, that, that was probably early 2000s. Now we have a yeah. lot of crossover. Now, Most yeah. OT shops have some IT component in the OT shop as well. So Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, I am... I'm happy for the industry that that collaboration has come a long way. I'm, I'm not sh so sure that it's really good everywhere, but I'm happy for the industry. Um, but I'm a little sad too, because it made for great podcast episodes <laughs> where, <laughs> where people, <laughs> people want to complain and argue and things like that, which always makes it more entertaining. But, um, but I want to go back to something that you said, which I think is interesting, which is that, um, and we're going to get we're going to bring this around to the security discussion too but i think it's a, some of this context is why the security conversation is so important now and you said i think you said it was in the in the 90s that or certainly in the early 2000s that we started wanting to use that data for business applications and yep. um 
And and now we've got the network connectivity, as you said. So I guess before you were just connecting things with serial cables and things like that. Um, yeah, there you know there were some operators, usually the bigger operators and more sophisticated business operations, that were moving information between their operational environment and their business environment for billing and inventory management and different yeah, kinds sure, of sure. operational controls. But right. it wasn't tightly coupled. Yeah. It was maybe a daily trans transmit or maybe every four hours they'd move a block of data up there or something like that. Right, um, right, right. Uh, um, it's it's much more frequent than that now, but it started out slow. And, um, you know, it was really driven by business needs for, for data and information to f- keep yeah, the, yeah. You know, all the operations running the way they should. Right, and even the simple things like billing, like I remember back in my uh, consulting days, in like early two thousands, with like power plants. Right, okay, well if we can, uh, I remember we worked on one project that was exactly that to basically co- connect the whatever was going on with the SCADA systems to be able to capture that data and basically automate the billing process, and that was that was a huge ordeal. I mean, that was so difficult to try to do because of everything being in completely different worlds, like you said. Um, So, but when you say, so when you said, so the first, the thought that I had when you said, and then they began to want it for the business, this data for the business applications, I thought, and that's where the trouble starts. Because, because now these, the way you described these systems out there, which by the way, they're critical. And if they get compromised or they, you know, I mean, we, we could talk about, and we probably should spend a couple of minutes on, on, on why there's so much risk there. But once they started wanting it for the business applications and now we're connecting it, now it's not just a network you know, inside that ICS environment, but you're connecting it to other places. Isn't So this is even before we started having all this fancy digital transformation talk, right? Um, which, by the way, uh, some people are surprised to find out that it was always digital. But anyway, that's another, that's another topic. Yep. <laughs> um, before well, we start. Yeah. You know, I might, I might say, you know, back in, you know, from the beginning of my career in the, well, the late 70s, early 80s, we've been involved with real-time models where we. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Build a model and we simulate the hydraulics of the pipeline and we use that for planning and capacity management and power optimization and leak detection and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And the cool kids call that digital twins now. Yeah. That's basic yeah, that's exactly what the digital twin is, except <laughs> it's maybe slightly better technology than those, you know, pages and pages of Fortran code that were written you know, back Perhaps. in the early days. But, Perhaps. Yeah. But um, you know, the underlying uh, physics of the models are is still the same physics. The physics yeah. haven't changed. It's right. just the way they can manipulate the data and and analyze and, and the manage speed, it. the speed that we can and do it sp- now. Right? Speed, yeah. 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 Well, it's speed and it's scale. They can do a lot more data than we could do with those right. you know, older right. computers. Today, we've got much more capacity. We've got much more compute capability, and we can run those models a lot faster in real time. So yeah. we get better results. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I've, yeah. some of these models are just phenomenal the way they work. It is. Well, digital it's, twins. <laughs> yes, the digital twins. Oh, phenomenal. Um, yes. And they pop up everywhere in the industry. So, um, yeah. but so going back to this, so somewhere along the line of this evolution, 
of needing wanting to do more of this, you know, for the business, we started to have concerns about security, right? That, that um, mm-hmm. not, I mean, there were always concerns about security, but 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 I think it became more concerning as we started doing more of that stuff, right? Is that is not that kind of how it how how we got to where we are today? Yeah, I think so. You know, security's always been an issue. It's always been something that we've been concerned about, but it's never been until the last, say, 15 years or more, it hasn't been as big a focus of uh, an operating company or even individuals. And, you know, I know we've all seen in the last five or six years a tremendous escalation in the risk, security risk to not only OT and and business IT networks, but even your own personal computing and your personal privacy. So. You know, security, we, we always dealt with security in our architectures and in the work that we did. Um, we just considered it something we had to do as part of our business. Uh, now we focus on security as a as an independent discipline within our business because some of our clients want just security consulting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and there's... And- there's new risks now, though, right? I mean, there, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's that's the way the way that I've sort of observed things is. It seems like there are things that we worry about now that we didn't used to have to worry about. Not not in in the abstract, but I mean very specific things. So if we put everything together, we've been talking about. If you say, okay, we had this evolution of networks, we had um, an expansion and a greater uh, an expansion of the connectivity between the operations and the business side of the companies we've had tighter connectivity and more frequent data movement between those Mm -hmm. groups Mm -hmm. and we developed dependency because things that used to happen independently in the operational side now moved more into the business because they were more tightly coupled to the business right and as the business models grew then it made sense for them to be on the business side so now you've got all these dependencies on the business side that are required for the operational side to do its work. And I'm talking about things like scheduling and inventory management and right. shipper control and nominations and you know all this stuff that goes into how a pipeline works that have left the operations side as you know a, a self-contained entity and are now distributed across the business. And this is really what got Colonial. I mean, Colonial Pipeline had a problem in the IT side mm-hmm. and the operation side shut down just to avoid any right. potential problems as a as a prudent measure and then to restart they needed those back end business systems to restart yeah. and that's what delayed all the restart was getting all those business systems back uh. online and you know and and this is why TSA has come out and said hey operating companies you have to eliminate or substantially reduce those dependencies so you can continue to operate even in the event that the other side of the house is unavailable for some period of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this Uh, is one of those things in the security world that Colonial kind of turned everybody upside down and said, oh, gosh, now we got to do all these things (laughs) to satisfy the mitigating measures that TSAs asked the large operators to do. But for good reason. I mean, we yeah. have another client, and they said, "Wow, this is exactly our model. <laughs> we have to change that." Yeah, now because, we have to change. You know, <laughs> if that happened to us, we'd be just like Colonial. <laughs> you know, and yeah, and, yeah. You know, that's one of many. I mean, there are a lot of 
a lot of uh, companies out there that have those dependencies. And it's just that evolution. Yeah. Just the yeah. way things evolved. So now we're going through another evolution and there'll be still exchanges of information and and collaboration between the two sides, but there'll be once all this is shaken out, there'll be the ability for the OT to maybe run a little bit more autonomously in the event that they can't have the the back end yeah, yeah, that's so that's that's fascinating because um, and and the colonial, uh, the poor folks at colonial have, uh, uh, you know, the, the topic has come up numerous times. Many people on the show have have pointed. In fact, I kind of feel like most, like everybody in the industry, should be sending like gift cards and wine baskets and things to the people at colonial <laughs> because because of how much was learned uh, by that. Yep. But but. Um, um, and it comes up, but I think you're the first person that pointed out that the operational systems could not, there was a dependency, they couldn't come back up without the business systems coming up. That, that does seem like a critical design flaw um, that, that maybe you don't see coming until someday you realize, ooh, that's, that could yeah. be a problem. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a design flaw in terms of, you know, how the systems were architected or, or implemented. I mean, all these systems, you know, were running yeah. fine and doing their job. It was more a logistics problem. Yeah, a lo- um, a des- yeah. kind of a business know, design co- problem. You know, the, the things that make a pipeline work, and a lot of people don't understand how pipelines work, where, you know, um, a common carrier pipeline like Colonial takes product from lots of producers Mm-hmm. And those producers, you know, are scheduled to deliver product into the pipeline, and then that product shipped through the pipeline and it drops off in terminals along the way. And I don't know how many terminals Colonial has a lot. Yeah. yeah. From from Texas up to right. I don't know where Pennsylvania or wherever yeah. they end up. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of terminals. Sure. And um, all that scheduling and inventory management and all of those things that have to do with how products move through the through the pipeline is is the logistical piece of the business and it's you know it, it's a it's a marriage of business operations and yeah, physical yeah. operations uh, sure um, sure i can see that in fact that that's actually good to that's another thing that I think sometimes people, if you're not in that world, you, you know, you maybe we just imagine like a pipeline is just a pipe that runs from here to there. And first of all, why do you need why do you need all this fancy stuff to go with it? But yep. but it's not just yeah. it's not obviously there's all those other Such as, things we, happening. You got to manage the movements. You got to manage inventories and terminals. You know, it's one thing to be moving product through a pipeline and dropping it off in terminals, but you have to drop it off in terminals where the volumes are actually needed. You know, ah, metropolitan, right, right. a big metropolitan area needs a lot more frequent and a lot more infant, a lot more frequent deliveries and more inventory than you know a small metropolitan area. Yeah. So as a pipeline passes those, they manage those as part of their logistics uh, operations of the company. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. So. Um, yeah, and it's funny. I think sometimes we just you know the the, the layman. In the in the uh, in the crowd, we just we think of it like the pipe, like the water pipe in our house. Well, the water goes from here to there. Like, what's the big deal? But there's all this, all this other stuff. So, um, think about it. Think about it like putting marbles in a tube. You know, yeah. you drop marbles in a tube, and every marble is a is a type of product, and it you know rolls down, and occasionally one comes out somewhere else. Yeah, you know, that's it is one, fascinating. You, know, you got to put one in to push the other ones through. So even if you have a lot of product in the line, 
you can't take it anywhere unless you're pushing more in from the other end. Right. And by the way, digital twins are making an appearance in that world as well um, to try yes. to ensure integrity of things like that. Um, uh, shout out to my friend Kayla at Valadir. But um, hmm. uh, okay, so uh, I want to, I'm, I'm kind of navigating towards something here, which is all of these things are putting pressure in, in the ICS world, the OT world. Um, to to modernize because the other thing we mentioned is uh, you you mentioned that the, these systems have evolved over the years but for the most part if I understand correctly um, there is e- even without all of this new uh, these new requirements for you know fancy digital things um, there's there's already pressure to modernize some of this stuff for other reasons right there people were kind of already dealing with that with that challenge. Yes, yes. Uh, well, as technology grows and as um, equipment and software that they already have in place gets to be older, there's an impetus to, um, to replace that and upgrade it to get better functionality. And then the other piece of that equation is regulatory requirements, right, new security right. requirements, increased uh, demand from the business sides. Maybe they want more data, so they're upgrading their field infrastructure to acquire yeah. more information that facilitates the business. Um, mergers, you know, two big pipeline companies merge. Well, they usually want to have a consolidated control center these days rather than operate two independent ones. So that yeah, usually yeah. or many times facilitates an upgrade or a replacement of one or the other. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in that equation. But right. it's really driven by... Um, effectiveness. Does the system you have, is it effective? Does it still do the job? Can you maintain it? You know, is, is it is it supportable for a reasonable cost? Is it reliable? Does it have yeah, you know, high yeah. availability and whatnot? So. so all of this is putting, so I'm imagining right now there's, so the operational folks who are listening to this are saying, yes, yes, you're, you're describing my world. I know all this already. Um, what what do I do about it, right? Like how do so this sounds like a whole heap of uh, challenges and pressures being put on that world. On top of that, we got to worry about security in ways that we didn't used to have to worry about security. And I sure don't want to be the next colonial. Um, what? Uh, so you're out there working with folks in this arena. What do they do? How, how do you how do you steer them through all of these challenges? Well, one of the things, one of the reasons. Uh, operating companies would come to a company like UTSI is knowledge and experience and and up-to-date knowledge of the industry and the vendors and the technologies that are being used. Is with companies like ours, and we're not the only one who does this, but companies like ours, um, we, we work in this area all the time, and we work with multiple operators and vendors and different kinds of technologies all the time. So we're current. Now, you take an operating company, they've had the same stuff in there for, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years or more, and they know that really well, and they know how to use it, and they know how to maintain it, they know what it does, but they don't know anything about what's going on. Well, I don't want to say they don't know anything, but they don't, they aren't up to date or current with everything that's going on in industry best practice and right, right. Uh, what the vendors are capable of and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, well, they don't have time, right? Because they have to, they're busy doing the things that they're doing. They don't have they don't have time. They have to run their business, and so the reason they bring on companies like us to help <laughs> them do upgrades or 
or replacements of existing systems is more of an uh, adding that expertise to their team and also augmenting their team with that expertise. Yeah. So their people, they might have a few people from their team that, that join the new project team, but they still have to keep everything they have running and doing the job that it does every day. I mean, that's a 24 by 7 operation, and it requires, requires uh, care and feeding all the time. Yeah. So we come in as an extension to their team to help them work through um, you know, where they are, and what they need to do, kind of, you know, what are the demands that are prompting some kind of a change or an upgrade? And then we help them figure out how to get there. Yeah. And there are multiple ways they can get there depending on their needs. But Right. So the how to get yeah. there is always interesting, um, especially since, as you're describing this, I'm thinking, okay, as you just said, they are they're doing their regular job, which is to keep this stuff running and... Um, and by the way, this stuff has to run all the time. Um, I mean, you know, downtime, uh, we've, and we've talked about this on some other episodes re- related to things like uh, refineries or chemical plants, but hey, same thing, I'm sure, for pipelines. It's pretty, downtime's costly, right? It's, uh, it's, yeah. not like, it's not like we can say, hey, let's just take this thing offline for a couple of weeks while we, so, so how do you deal with the old, uh, you know, tire on a moving airplane or whatever it is uh how do you how do you how do you do do that how do you modernize this stuff that has to be and and i know i know that this answer probably involves a a whole uh methodology and process but but like what's the how how do you how do you do it well we're fortunate that most operating uh ot environments these days have primary and redundant you know it's a fully redundant operation Ah, okay and a lot of them have an Offsite, if it's critical infrastructure, they probably have an offsite disaster recovery center as well. And so the way you transition from something existing to something new is you do it a piece at a time. Typically, we come in, we'll run uh, maybe the old and the new in parallel. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different ways to do that. And like mm-hmm. you said, that could be a whole other podcast. But you run yeah. in parallel, you do your testing and checkout, and then you gradually switch over from one to the other. Uh, if it's an upgrade and they're using the same infrastructure, you upgrade one of the redundant components independent of the other pieces and test that out. And then if it's test out okay, you do a trial and switch over to it and you know make sure everything's okay. If it seems okay, you work on upgrading another one, yeah, you know, the, one of the other pairs, and work through it that way. But it's a prudent engineering process of... of um, you know, good design, good planning, making sure you have a fallback position and you can recover when you need to if something goes wrong. Um, you know, by and large, a complete re- replacement is a lot easier than an upgrade because you typically have new components. You have yeah. new servers, you have new networks and everything. So right. if you can run in parallel, the switchover is, well, let's switch over and see how it goes. And if it doesn't go too good, we just switch, switch back, back to the old right. system and yeah. we're running. Uh, and, but, but even at that, that whole component of, of testing and validation and certification that the new stuff is working at the level it needs to work and is doing the job without error is absolutely necessary before you make any decision to switch over to operations. So that, so you just said, that's another interesting thing, right? Which is, um, 
again, if I am, uh, to use my simple plumbing example, uh, which by the way, I'm not actually allowed to do in my house, but, um, but if we, if, if I'm, if I'm, uh, reconfiguring, uh, something in my bathroom and I, you know, I, if I can tell if it's working cause the water comes out, the water doesn't come out. And if the water comes out here and it doesn't come out anywhere else, right. Then, then I know it's yeah. right. But, but <laughs> so it's very simple. But the, when you talk about a little cut over and then cut it back yeah, what is, what, what is that? What, what is that validate? So you mentioned validation process. That sounds, um, that sounds like a big deal probably I would guess. So, so with, uh, yeah, well, regulation has made that in the pipeline industry more complicated. Oh. So if you have regulated pipelines. I always uh, thought regulations make things simpler. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm well, surprised to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we wish. <laughs> if, if we're putting in new systems. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. If everything's changing, you have to do point-to-point testing, which means <clears throat> you have to physically test and exercise every piece of data that's affected by that change and in coming into the system. And like I said, there are a lot of ways to do this. If you're running in parallel with the kinds of communication systems we have today, you can usually get some kind of a listen-in mode. So you actually are listening to the data coming from the field and interacting with it in the new system while the old system is still operating and running with that same data. So you can test things that way. Yeah. Um, and there are other ways to accomplish that as well. Uh, in, in the older days, sometimes we just take one remote site and say we're taking that remote site offline for a few hours and we're switching it over to the new system so we can do checkout. Yeah. Now, you know, we don't like to do that because it means a piece of infra- infrastructure has to be taken offline. Yeah, so yeah. if they can do it with parallel, this listen-in mode thing, it's a lot more efficient for the operation side. Yeah. But every company is different. So you have to look at these things and figure out what's going to work for them and what's going to be the safest and most efficient way to get them from point A to point B. Yeah. Well, we but, talked about but that But nonetheless, earlier. that whole testing component has to be done. Right. Um, and with any new system, you'd want to do the testing component anyway. Regulation makes it mandatory and you have to keep records of the testing. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Sure. So... Um, so the, the the short the short answer to everything that I've heard you say for the last couple of minutes is, it's all possible if you know what you're doing, and uh, uh, which kind of comes back to what you said, which is the experience um, and the and the knowledge and and yeah, it, it makes sense to uh, to have somebody who knows all that. Um, what, uh, yeah, the ability to plan for the pitfalls and hopefully never fall into one of them. ideally ideally that's what we want so i want to i want to shift gears just a little bit um because we 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 got we started we started talking about the security aspect of all this and then we kind of got off on on this um which is really interesting just thinking about just kind of the the project management engineering challenges with the modernization but in the security so now we we're we're really preoccupied with this whole security thing there's a lot of there's a lot of people I, I hear a lot of things you know I hear a lot of you know people talk about things like having a cybersecurity strategy and um, I don't know some other things that I'm not you know it's sometimes I think they're buzzwords and sometimes they're real but what do you see happen like for for the people who are out there um, you know dealing with this stuff what does and who don't want to be in the same position as Colonial 
what what is uh like what's a is is there a is there a distinct and you said that some people hire you just for the security stuff so is there is this kind of a, a discipline a distinct like I, security planning uh, etc what does that look like today yep I guess is uh, what I'm industrial control system security is a is a discipline there are companies out there that do just that um, and it involves everything from helping companies come up with I would say a policy. Uh, cybersecurity policies, which involve everything from, you know, how you configure your firewalls, how you architect your networks, how you authenticate users, um, uh, you know, how group policies work in your networks, and a myriad of other things, to uh, incident response. Do you have an incident yeah. response plan? Right. Is the incident response plan tested? Um, and now the recommendation is to do a tabletop exercise for incident response at least once a year. Uh, I know some companies that do it three or four times a year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this is all to make sure one, that your plan works because an incident response plan in a big operating company, like, uh, like, well, like any of the big pipeline operators mm -hmm. involves everybody from the CEO all the way down to the, to the technical guys in the control center. Yeah. And yeah. Depending on what's happening and what kind of an incident you're responding to, there are roles and responsibilities for all those people. If it's, you know, if it's communications or legal or insurance or finance, you know, responding costs money, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, and and if you have to pay a pay a ransom, does the company know how to how to pay a ransom? You know, do they do they have do they have access to bitcoins? I mean, yeah, it's not right. something that we we do in a in a corporate world so much. Yeah. So, you know, do they know how to do that? And then on the technical side, you know, are the technical people prepared? Do they have the tools in place to monitor the networks to recognize uh, unusual activities and respond to them? Can they can they isolate systems and eradicate the the problem right, right. quickly? You know, all this. And more is part of an incident response plan for a for a cybersecurity incident. Yeah, and that that's a big piece. That's something that companies tend to overlook because it's it's a document, it's procedural, but there's a lot of meat behind that document that involves people and process. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. And when you need it, you need it. Yeah, I mean, right, right. Unfortunately, yeah. it just happens, and you got to spring into action. So. Well, well, that so, but there's an interesting point there, which is that uh, I have been I have been told by um, by other folks uh, who specialize in this area that the uh, that a typical uh, so, speaking of roles is a new role that's been relatively new role been created, right? The CISO, the, the chief mm -hmm. information security officer. So we have those, those folks now. And what I understand is that, um, they don't get a report. Uh, they don't get a report. If something happens, they get weekly reports about all the things that do happen. It's, Yep. The, 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 there's, they're not all they're not all huge compromising incidents like otherwise we but but it's not like um, um, and and like you said when you need it you need it but but there's there are any large company has got at least some level of reportable incidents happening all the time is that is that true yeah uh, uh, well incidents rather they're reportable from a regulatory perspective or not is another question but but well no I meant like reportable that, to, that the, are, to the to the to the to the CISO yeah right. like there's things yeah. he wants to he wants to know about right and they're happening noteworthy, all the time note, noteworthy things and and training you know a lot of companies use um, 
uh, internal training, cybersecurity training for just their normal uh, network users, and they send out simulated phishing emails. Yes. There are a couple companies that are no- yes. noteworthy for that. Yes. And, you know, if you click on it, the security guys get a little blip, and then they, you know, they pulse you. And if you do it a couple of times, you got to go back for more training. And the CISO is seeing that, and they're saying, hey, you know, 20% of our people are clicking on these simulated phishing uh, emails, right. and we better do some more uh, very sophisticated training because that's, you know, really high. If one or two people do it, well, maybe they need some individual training, but right, right. if you're getting a lot of them, maybe there's something wrong in the yeah. way you're doing it across the board. So, you know, those and those are important things. Those, there's uh, one we particular... say in the security industry, we kind of say, or security in general, we say that uh, we could have a lot more secure environments if we could just get rid of users. You know, the people, you know? it's, it's always I mean, been the are, problem. It's always people are the, the weak link, and and you know I'm in that boat too. I mean, people are the weak link because it, you see something yeah. and you just you know you make a mistake, and it only takes a click. And that's only a couple of milliseconds. You know? <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> then you're in trouble. That, that's so, why the yeah. that's why the yeah. security people have always been so grumpy. Um, I I, know, I remember back yeah. in the back in my uh, again you know I, we, we talked earlier. I kind of grew up in the IT consulting world, and you could always at any project meeting, you could always tell when uh, when the security guy walked in for the meeting for the room because they always and 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 people can't see this because we, we can see each other but but um, they always walked in they always kind of had their arms crossed like this and they sat back in their chair and they kind of looked around and looked around they always had the same kind of they didn't even you didn't, they didn't even have to introduce themselves you knew that was the security person and they, at some point and they wouldn't say anything until at some point in the meeting they would lean forward you know, and put their arm, their forearm on the table and say, hang on a second, folks, you can't do that. We're not going to, we can't do that. And then, and then it would, it would derail the whole thing. And, uh, uh, but, but it's, it's like you said, it's because um, it's not just an inconvenience, right? Like these are, these are real, like real damage can be done. And uh, as, as now we know, unfortunately, so. Can be. Yeah, yeah. So were, yeah. I, 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 were you ever that guy? Were you ever the guy that came in like with the arms folded? And they, they always looked the no, same. I, it was remarkable. I, you know, I, I may have been that guy for other reasons, but <laughs> not necessarily for security. <laughs> it was. We always knew who they were. So, all right. I'm looking. I'm watching the clock here. We probably need to uh, kind of wrap up. Um, uh, but but this is really it's it's great. Um, uh, I, I really I appreciate understanding, and I think it's good to understand the history. And because now, as you're describing that 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 incident response plan, and as you're you're talking about things like it involves everybody from the CEO all the way down to you know whoever the technician is, those are sort of new things, right? That wasn't always yeah. always the case, and that's that's yep. a good that's that's because of of how we've evolved in the way that you've described before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's a big decision. I mean, these companies—they're—they're they're generally um, uh, openly traded companies, so they've got—they've got shareholders, they've got customers, they've got employees. You know, they've got lots of responsibility for individuals and entities that are part of that company. Yeah, and. Yeah. You know, some of those decisions they have to go to the to the top. And you remember in Colonial, the the CEO came down and said, you know, I was the one that made the decision to pay the ransom. Yeah, 
Right, and, right. Yeah. You know, that responsibility lied with him. And, and you know, of course he's aware of, you know, shareholder impressions and, you know, everybody else. I mean, it, but it, there's a point where you got to make a judgment. And, yeah. And that's a hard judgment. I mean, I don't envy anybody who has to be in that position. Well, there's no guarantee. It's apart from difficult. making the decision to spend the money, there's no guarantee. I mean, you, you are dealing with criminals, right? Like, we've all seen yeah. the movies where where – the, where the person holding somebody for ransom makes a bunch of demands and then they don't exactly deliver on their side of the bargain right after the demands mm-hmm. are met. So, um, so hopefully, hopefully all of the cybersecurity criminals are upstanding enough to actually like, you know, uh, keep their end of the deal. <laughs> you pay them. Well, you know, the funny thing about that whole dark side thing that got colonial is they, they apologized <laughs> and, and said, really, we just wanted to, we just wanted to make money. We're just a business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't mean to disrupt the whole the whole eastern half of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Whoops. You know? <laughs> we didn't whoops. mean to start a fire sale. Um, yeah, whoops. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's maybe let's. Uh, this is good stuff. Let's wrap up with um, anything. So so anybody who might be listening to this saying uh, and and saying yes, we're in a in a situation where we need to be doing, we need to change what we're doing. We need to do things better. Um, like what's, what's your guidance? I mean, like apart from, you know, calling Daniel and saying, please come fix this for me, which is obviously the correct thing to do. But, but, but in addition to that, like how, where, how do you, how do you kind of guide people to get started on that, that process? I, I think, um, any, any operating company needs to be, continually looking out for how their systems are performing, um, how they're complying with their uh, regulatory demands, and from the security perspective, continuously be looking at activities in their network and how their networks are configured and continually trying to improve that. Because, you know, especially with security, it's not a one-time thing. You can't just go in and put some mm-hmm. stuff in and patch the systems and say, okay, I'm good. Yeah. You yeah. got to be looking at it all the time because things are changing and uh, these these bad actors, I mean, they're smart guys and they're changing too. You change, they change. Right, and, right, right. You know, uh, any companies getting hundreds or more of, of, you know, bad guys knocking on their firewall doors every day. Right, right. And, yeah. You know, we see it in our, even in our little business, we see... Lots of evidence of people trying to get in. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would like to take you out of the game because, you know, it would make their life easier in other places. But, um, yeah, that's a good point, which is we used to – I remember, you know, years ago, whenever we thought about security, we only thought about things like hardening systems and, and, you know, properly configured firewalls. And and, But now it's not just the – it's not just having the technical gear, uh, you know, configured correctly. There's a whole bunch more to it. Yeah, we're it's an interconnected world now, and right. that's yeah. opened up a lot of opportunity for bad things to happen, and means that you have to be much more vigilant. That, um, I think we talked. I think the last time we talked, uh, we we talked about how I don't really care to have my refrigerator on the internet. I can I can I, I can I can do my grocery shopping without having a live camera view of my refrigerator because it just. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and and I think we forgot to mention. I think we forgot to mention that uh, you also have like like you have a house somewhere that's like completely like like you're ready for when it goes down. You're ready for the for for off grid life. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a big big house, a completely off grid, 
solar powered with backup generators and my own well and everything. Yeah, yeah, so it, pretty it, nice. It, the only it, the only connected utility I have is a wired phone, and that's it. It, it, it's fantastic. I would actually love to have a play. So the irony, though, if I remember correctly, is it's not like it's not like because you're a security guy, you went on and 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 built this place out in the wilderness, right? You actually just like somebody had it and they and they sold it to you. Yeah, yeah. I I went looking for it. it it's out in the mountains, and I wanted mountain property and yeah, you know, it's bordering yeah. on a wilderness area and national forest, and it's yeah. uh, pretty. Yeah. And, yeah. That's the environment I like. So yes, I, I bought I bought it, and it was already the way that it, it is. was already. And so you said this is beautiful. <laughs> this is exactly what I want. That's exactly good. Exactly what I wanted. That's good. All right. So uh, so Daniel Nagala, thanks for uh, making time today, and uh, we can. Uh, the reason why we're we're doing this remotely is because even though this is something that people don't always appreciate, even though we can both say in a very loose sense that we're in Houston. We're like 50 miles apart from each other. It's, it's people, people not from here don't really always appreciate that, that you can drive for 50 miles and still be in something that people refer to as Houston. Yep. But, but, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. It's true. When, yeah. when, I was, when I was living, uh, so you may, you may not know this, I lived in Madrid, Spain for almost 30 years. And well, you mentioned you have a Spanish Madrid, phone, so now it's all coming together. Yeah, I'm getting and, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I, I speak Spanish and everything. But anyway, when I lived in when I lived in Madrid, I would uh, tell my friends, yeah, you know, from my office to the airport in Houston, it's a hundred kilometers. And they go, no way, <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a hundred kilometers, and that's just across town. <laughs> you have to take a plane to the airport to get to the right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true. People don't anyway. always appreciate it. So anyway, we're, uh, we're really spread out. Yeah, yeah, we are. So, uh, but anyway, thanks again, and uh, maybe we'll uh, we might have to we might have to do this again before too long, and and hear about whatever other interesting things are going on in the security world. But thanks for making time today. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And there you have it, folks. What a great history lesson. And those of you faithful listeners, which should be all of you, by the way, uh, will will note that I am uh, I have an affinity for for history lessons, particularly when it comes to this industry. And uh, we're going to get to my favorite history lesson here in just a second. But first, there's probably a couple things I got to tell you. Um, yeah, well, we got a lot going on at OGGN, as I always as I always point out. So be sure to follow us on LinkedIn so you don't miss anything. Uh, most importantly, or at least. I don't know, it's not, maybe it's not most important, but it's the most important thing to me right now is this new uh, live stream that we're going to kick off. Uh, it's it's going to be a monthly program. And uh, and it's going to be, you probably heard me talk about it on, the, on last week's episode because you are a faithful listener. And it's, it's a TV show, essentially. It's a TV show and we're going to be talking about some stuff. It's called OGGN Unscripted. It's going to go exactly the way the title says. And it's going to be fun. So it's not going to be one of those boring ones. So so make sure that you tune in. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we get the first one right, and you'll want to come back after that. Also, uh, so those are going to be on the first Thursday of every month, starting with March third, and on the last Thursday of every month is our industry mixer, the OGGN uh, in, legendary OGGN industry mixer, which is is, is going strong. We're, we've had a really great turnout for the one in January. The next one comes up on February twenty fourth, and. Uh, uh, so I so I hope to, to see everybody there if you're in Houston and if you're not in Houston um, then you probably can't make it but uh, but if you ever are in Houston if you're ever traveling on the last Thursday of the month it's a perfect opportunity to come hang out with a bunch of other industry folks alright that is going to wrap it up thanks as always to the OGGN team 
for all of the hard work. Thanks to uh, all of you listening and uh, giving us a reason to produce these programs, uh, which are always made to sound fantastic by my audio fixer guy, Mr. Mac Roman. So thanks to him too. And remember, back to the history lesson, which which you know because you've heard me say it, but, uh, but, but today's episode is yet another great example of how this industry has been innovating for a very long time. And so whenever you hear somebody saying something that sounds not like that, something that sounds like somehow we're not modern. We don't do the new cool stuff. We're behind the times. We, uh, you know, we don't like to change. That is when you need to give them that history lesson and explain to them that we were tech before tech was cool. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.